to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. One of the things um, I sometimes do on a bit of time off is go for, stupid really, go for a, a relatively long distance run, which for me is about an hour, it's about seven miles and a little while ago, I, just before Christmas, I decided to go for a slightly longer one, a bit longer than expected. I thought I'd go sort of exploring north up the Thames. Uh, and I went and I got as far as Wolvercott. Um, and then I turned around and I came back, retracing my steps. And about three quarters of the way through the run, about halfway back that is, I began to realise there's quite a difference between my normal run of about an hour and this longer, abnormal run of about an hour and a half. And it started to hurt. And I felt, as I was going, my legs begin to feel heavy and my knees begin to sort of stiffen. And my pace slowed. But, but actually the issue I really had to deal with was a mental issue. It was what was going on in my head. I felt I'd sort of hit that, that wall that the marathon runners talk of, although about probably ten miles earlier than they would. And I had to urge myself to keep going, to keep pressing on. But there were no others around, it was just me, so I was talking to myself, I was distracting myself, I was bargaining with myself. And yet the thing that helped me the most, if I'm honest, was, was the fact that I kept telling myself, just one more bridge to go, you can walk from there, just do one more bridge and then you can walk, just another hundred metres or so. And, then, and I kept on doing that again and again and again through seven or eight bridges. Just, just a few more minutes, just one more song on the MP3 player and bargaining with myself to keep plodding on and keep my knees moving. And then you can get home and have some lunch and get warm and it'll be fine. And it strikes me that perseverance is hardest when you don't know how long you're persevering for. And they say, so when you don't know how long it's going to go on, then actually that makes it really difficult to keep going. And so as John writes to these churches and to us, do you remember, he writes that something is coming or something has come from this side. And how does he encourage them to keep persevering? How does he encourage them to keep climbing the stairs, to keep going even though it feels perhaps like there are more people coming down or the steps are feeling steeper? Well, last week, do you remember, he reminded them of what their God is like and we saw the Trinitarian God. Do you remember? We saw the Eternal Father, uh, who was and who is and who is to come, verse 4. And then we saw what we described as the Emmanuel Spirit, that is, uh, second half of verse 4, the fullness of God, I think that's the seventh thing going on, coming to the completeness of his people. You've got the seven lampstands later on. And then we had, verse 5, the exemplary Son, he who both sets us the pattern of obedience, but gives us the, the encouragement that he loves us and longs for us to keep going. Gives us the pattern of what it means to faithfully witness for him. 
to faithfully persevere, even though it's hard, and even though we feel like we're maybe just turning around on the stairs and coming back down again with everybody else, because it's much easier. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is with you. Keep going, keep going. But the next thing he does in our verses for today, I, I think, is to remind them both of, of who they are, of their identity, of the reality of their identity. But then in the midst of the pain and the fear that I take it they're going through, he, he reminds them that it's not going to go on forever. That there will be an end. Just, just keep going. It's one more bridge. Keep pressing on. You you might feel like you're in a losing minority now. You might feel like you can't continue. But keep going, because the reality is there will be an end to it. But he focuses first on their identity. And so he says to them, I think he says, remember who you are. In, In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the reality of daily life, we can so easily get caught up with our situation but we forget actually who we are in him. And he describes them, you see it in verse 6, as a kingdom and as priests. Let me read, though, from verse 5 of last week. You'll see it ties in. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So remember from last week, because of Jesus' love, so we have been freed from our sins. That is, freed from the condemnation of sins, freed from slavery to sin, freed from Satan's accusations and power over us. He has no right now, because our sins have been dealt with. But but as we are freed from our sins, End of verse 5. It's not as if we're simply rudderless or identityless or, or just free to do whatever we want. And that's one of the ways that the world around us will use this idea of freedom. Freedom is, well, free to do what you want to do when you want to do it, however you want to do it. Which isn't freedom at all because we just end up enslaved to those things that we think we're free to do. We're very bad slave masters. But when the Bible talks about freedom, it's never in those terms. So when he says here you're free from sin... It means you're free to be the people you were made to be. You're free to be truly who you were made to be. And therefore, verse 6, to be a kingdom and to be priests. Which I take it is free to be like Jesus. I I think he's tying them together. In in verse 5, he describes Jesus in various ways. He describes him in in a priestly, sacrificial way when he talks of blood, when he talks of freeing people from sins. When he talks of the firstborn from the dead, it's as if his sacrifice has, has dealt with death and sin forever. So there's this priestly slant going on in verse 5. But then there's a kingly slant as well, John uses this cosmic language, it's very striking, just at the end of that first paragraph in verse 5. Because Jesus has conquered sin and death, because he is the firstborn from the dead, so 
He is in a sovereign position over the cosmos. That, that's why he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the inaugurator of the new covenant. He is the king. The king. And therefore he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's in charge. He is sovereign. He is ruling. So Jesus is a priest from the blood language. He is a king from the ruler of the king's language, the firstborn from the dead language. And if Jesus is a priest and a king, then who are we? We are also priests. And at least part of his kingdom. Some commentators even say that we are kings with him, the sense in which he is ruling now, and in a sense we are ruling in him, but finally we shall be seen to be ruling as you reach the end of Revelation. But definitely we are a part of his kingdom and we are priests. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus has this identity as a priest and a king. And John says, you are like him. You are to be a kingdom and priests serving his God and Father. Our identity and that of Jesus are intertwined together. Which is very striking. What does it mean to be a kingdom and priests though? I, I take it the question that we ask is how did Jesus serve? How did Jesus serve as a priest? How does he serve as the king? And I take it primarily in mind is the cross. He, he served as a priest by putting aside self, by living for the sake of others, by living for his Father's glory, by sacrificially pouring himself out, pouring his blood out for us, despite the consequences. And then he reigned as king in much the same way. He's, he's risen and exalted now at the Father's right hand, but his kingship was seen as he wore a crown of thorns. He was lifted in glory on the cross. And yet, as we've said, one of the helpful ways for us to read Revelation, to understand what's going on in Revelation, is to know our Bibles beforehand. And so there's definitely, a, there's definitely an exodus flavour as we read this idea of priests and kings. Maybe if you're eager, eager eyes you'll have noted that. Do you remember in Exodus 19, just before God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, do you remember what he says? I'll try and rewind your mind and access that little bit. He says this, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. And here's the bit. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. Did you see the people of God here are described in similar ways to the people of God in the Exodus. And the, the, the kingly priesthood stuff in Exodus was, was a question of witnessing for God to the world. Showing the Gentiles what God is like, displaying his glory. The whole earth is his, but through Israel he was going to show the world what he was like. They were to be kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to display God's light in the dark world. You, 
you might know you get similar ideas in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5 onwards as well. Again, very similar language in Peter's mind, I think, as he looks back to the Exodus. Believers under persecution, and he's urging them to stand firm and keep going and be a priestly kingdom for the Lord. And so what happens if we tie the two threads together? Well, the people of God are his treasured possession, and so they are to be priests and a kingdom for him, displaying the light of God in a dark world, living in light of the cross, living as Jesus did, as a priest and as a king. I think they're the kind of threads that John is wanting us to tie together as we mix and match different metaphors that the Bible uses, but then coming alive afresh as we tie them with Christ and his role as the ruler of the kings of the earth and as the one who loves us and freed us by his blood. So what I find striking is when you think firstly about kingdom and priests, it all feels very sort of otherworldly and grand. But in reality, I I think it's just daily living Jesus sort of stuff. Whatever that is for you, whatever the relationships he's put you in through your week, as you head out this week, as you're a whatever you are, teacher, doctor, nurse, student, husband, wife, whatever it is you fill your week with, what does it mean for you to be a kingdom, a priest, one who serves our God and Father, Well, if we do it like Christ, then we're daily putting aside self and living in light of the cross. We're we're daily loving God and living for his glory instead of self. We're daily choosing to go his own way. And that makes a huge difference in the way that we relate to other people. The things that motivate us, the things that drive us. And as we do those things, then we're showing a dark and cynical world what our God is like. Well, so John reminds us of who we are. In the midst of all that's going on, Christians, John says, remember who you are. And you can get caught up in trying to keep going up the stairs and all these people coming down after you and the steps feeling really steep, but John says, remember, you're a kingdom and and you're a priest and you have the Lord Jesus who goes ahead of you, following his footsteps. Remember the calling you have. And maybe we say, well, you know, the steps are feeling really steep at the moment. And, and there are more and more people coming down and it feels hard. I'm not sure I can keep going. I'm, I'm not sure I can keep plodding. My knees are really hurting. How do I persevere? How do I keep going? Well, John says to us, secondly, remember, it's not forever. Verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I want to say it's not forever. Well, of course, end of verse 5, it is forever, really. To him be glory forever and ever. We're going to be serving him forever and ever. But in, in these bodies, this side of eternity... In this world, it's not eternal. It's not forever. 
the race will end because Jesus will return, verse 7. And, it's about this point then, we have to zoom in on verse 7 to try and work out what's going on there and what's being said, but then zoom out again and think through what does this language mean? Why does John use these verses, this, these words? If you have a look at the bottom, you've got some footnotes you see he is quoting for us. Said, Jim, we said reading Revelation is a bit like reading the final page of a novel. We don't just expect to go into Waterstones and pick up a novel and read the last page and understand all that's going on. The plot and the characters and what's, what, what it's about. No, 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 you need to start at the beginning. And our problem is we read Revelation is, is very often we don't actually know our Bibles that well. And so when they use this language, we're kind of slightly confused, scratching our head, thinking, it all just sounds a bit weird. But thankfully, we have some footnotes to help us. So Daniel 7, verse 13, and it's Zechariah 12, and he kind of splices them together. Daniel 7, and verse, I'll read 13 to 14 for us. In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now if you know Daniel, you probably know about up as far as this bit. Because then it gets a bit wacky and apocalyptic and everyone misses that bit out. But this is the sort of end of the more normal stuff. And what's going on there is that at least the context is of God coming to judge evil nations and empires. There's this son of man character, we'll see more of him in weeks to come. He is approaching the ancient of days, that's the Lord, into his presence. And he has an authority and glory and power over creation, over the nations. His, his kingdom is an eternal one. He's going to come and judge so there's that sort of aspect then spliced in with Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Again, as you track it back into Zechariah, it's a passage initially about Israel, but now all the nations of the earth mourning as they see the reality that we crucified Christ. They're mourning over Jesus. And John is splicing these verses together for Christians to tell them that Jesus will come back. He will return. And as he comes, people will see who he is and they will mourn what they have done. The striking thing though is if you get to chapters 2 and 3, Jesus does return. He's going to come and visit various churches. He's going to come and visit in, in judgment and warning in the there and then at that point. That the little comings, though, the little returns, are but a tiny reflection of the big return when he comes finally. Just a, a prefiguring and a pointer. He's going to come and judge and encourage these little churches. A little arrow of what will come when he returns again.
Because then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It says, do you see the encouragement to keep going from, from verse 7? He's saying this won't last forever. Keep plodding. Keep going. It's not going to be forever. And you know, when you don't have to persevere forever, when, when you know it's going to stop, then you know you can keep going. It'll be worth it. We have the perspective we, we need. And Jesus will come and people will see him for who he is. Reality will be seen. One day, all the world will see Jesus. He promised he'd be raised again, and he was. He promised he will return, and he will. So remember who you are. Remember it's not forever. Now thirdly, and finally, remember who God is. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I take it as you read verse 7, and you hear of Jesus returning and coming to judge, maybe the more cynical among us are thinking, really? He's, are you sure he's coming back? He, he said he would a long time ago. Why is, why is he taking so long then? Does he really have the power to do the things that he says he will do? And I think it's a fair question. Whenever we hear something extraordinary, an amazing claim in history, we want to ask, is it legitimate? Cynically, perhaps we ask in our culture whether we can trust things or not. Well, John says you can trust that he will return because you must remember who God is. And so he ties verse 7 in with verse 8. But as you look at verse 8, though, have a look down. Maybe you're thinking, you've been here in previous weeks, that sounds quite a lot like verse 4. Do you remember the eternal father bit from last, from last week? Why is he repeating himself? Why is he saying the same thing again? I, there are two differences there as you look at verse 8. See if you can spot them. I think John's wanting to give us defences to bolster our concerns. To deal with our questions and doubts. The two differences I think... Firstly, he says he is the Alpha and the Omega. You see, that is new. That's new language. It's, it's technically a, a term called a merism. Again, you can impress your friends at dinner parties. M-E-R-I-S-M. And what it means, it's a statement of polar opposites that's meant to highlight all that's in between. This is quite important. So he's saying, from beginning to end, from first to last, from A to Z... God is there, but he's not just saying from first to last, from beginning to end, from A to Z. What he's saying is if he's at the very start or at the very end, so he controls everything in the middle. He is completely in control. He controls everything in between. He's not just the Alpha and the Omega, he's the Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, and right the way through. He is in charge. That's what a merism means. Does that make sense? So he's not just saying he's got the start and the end covered. He's saying he's got everything covered. Which flies in the face of what many people think God is like at the moment. Christians even. Maybe some people say, well, well God starts things off and God will come and finish it off. 
But the stuff in between is a bit more iffy. He doesn't care so much about that. He just kind of lets it sort of work its way out and someday he'll come and sort it all out and finish it off. But I think that misses the point of Alpha and Omega. Because he controls the start and the end. So everything in between is in his hands. That ought to be an incredible encouragement for us. As we look at our lives, as we look at the darkness around us, and we can say, okay, I'm going to struggle to understand, but I'm going to trust him that he's in control. Even the little things, he's in control. So there's your first difference. You've got Alpha and Omega. What's the second one? Says the Lord Almighty. That's another difference between verse 8 and verse 4. And the says the Lord Almighty wording is a, is a reference, really, a formula from the prophets. Prophets in the Old Testament. And it means, this is God speaking. He, he's in control. This is his voice. You can trust what he is saying. And so often for the prophets, it was such good news because they had perhaps enemy armies stacking up against them. Or perhaps they felt like an incredible minority with with people surrounding them. And so says the Lord Almighty were words of incredible comfort to the people hearing the first prophetic voice. And so for John, on Patmos, suffering for his faith, for these first century Christians under Nero, suffering for their faith, These words would have been a huge comfort for his people. Says the Lord Almighty means he's in control. Here is John with highlighter and double underlining saying you can trust him. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the God of the prophets. He's got you covered. what does John say? He says, remember who you are Christians. Remember that you you are priests. That you are part of his kingdom. You are joined to him with with a similar kind of role to him. Going the way of the cross. And and Christians, remember that it's not forever. It's really not verse 7. Jesus will come back and all the world will see what the truth is, what reality is. And remember who God is. He is the Alpha and the Omega, who was and who is and who is to come. He's the one who's got it covered right the way through. He is the Lord. And so the question we ask then is, is, well, where do these verses bite for you? In the everyday, as you go through, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, as you work your way through this week, where do you struggle to live as a Christian? Where do you struggle to believe words like this? When are you most tempted as you're working your way up the stairs and it feels steeper and it feels like there are more coming down, where are you tempted to just go, you know, I might just turn around. I might just blend in and be like everyone else because that's much easier. Well, John says to us as he says to them, remember who you are. Remember it's not forever and keep going and and remember who God is. Because you really can trust him. And you must trust him.
Let's pray.